Hello, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast hosted by your El Paso Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the Minority Women's Enterprise Diversity Center. I am Idali Discareño, your host for the show. We want to welcome Mr. Mike McQueen, partner at Ken Smith Law and Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. But before I do that, I'd like to take care of some housekeeping items. If you're looking for commercial real estate in El Paso, reach out to our friends at Epicenter at 915-532-3456. They have locations all over El Paso. Also, special shout out to our friends over at Sun Carpets for sponsoring our podcast room. And now, without further ado, I would like to thank Mr. Mike McQueen for hosting today's episode and welcome Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. Take it away. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us here today. Uh, we have a few questions that we'd like to ask you uh, related to the current situation. Uh, the first is that uh, there are numerous experts have said that the coronavirus has been and really continues to be uh, especially devastating in minority communities. Is anything being done legislatively to address these specific communities? Absolutely. And first, Mike, let me thank you so much for the opportunity to visit with you today and to have this very important conversation. Things right now really are um, very frightening for uh, people all over the country, and you're 100% right. Minority communities have been uh, proven to be disproportionately impacted by coronavirus. In fact, I sounded the alarm with um, the city and the county and the health department a few months ago after a particularly alarming call that I had with Dr. Fauci. Uh, and as you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci is a member of the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force. And I had a number of conversations with him about the border really in particular because I'm concerned about, um, you know, we wanna make sure that our neighbor, uh, Mexico, or we hope what we want is for them to have the same standards in terms of testing, tracing, et cetera, so that we all protect ourselves. Um, in that phone call, the first phone call, Dr. Fauci said to me, that minority communities, because of our comorbidities, because of our socioeconomic challenges, which include lack of access to insurance, lack of access to primary health care, we are as vulnerable as, um, as assisted living facilities and nursing homes are. And that really shocked me. And when he put it in those very stark terms, I then asked him, so, so what are we supposed to do? What do you recommend? And he said that there needed to be a plan in place for minority communities that is as aggressive in terms of testing, tracing, mitigation, and care as there would be for those uh, vulnerable nursing homes and assisted living facilities. So I communicated that early on with the, the, the health district, the city and the county, the delegation, um, because that means that, that, that we need to be flooded with those resources. I then took that same information um, and used it in our leadership calls uh, as we were crafting the, uh, the, the, the latest round of coronavirus-specific funding, which is known as the HEROES Act. So we, we passed the HEROES Act now. It's been at least seven or eight weeks since we passed it in the House. Um, the Senate has not wanted to take up the, the legislation. In that legislation, one of the things that I'm really proud of and, and really pushed on was the minority community issue. So in the legislation, funding and resources 
for vulnerable communities are we are prioritized so that means we would um, depending on our numbers of course we would be prioritized in terms of the resources that bill just in funding to local and state governments alone would bring to el paso texas almost a billion dollars mike wow so yeah we know that our local governments and our state governments are on the front lines but local health districts especially you know we don't have we haven't seen a national testing strategy from the white house even though we've written it into law it's not happened we've provided the resources it's not happened and what's happened instead is that the white house has basically um moved a lot of that uh, planning and strategy to the governors and said it's up to each state. Um, in our state, uh, you know, the, the local governments, uh, local officials have seen some of their authority removed by the, the governor. And so it's, it's been a struggle, but we're doing our best to fight for those resources. But minority communities have to be prioritized. That is reflected in the HEROES Act. Um, I am really proud that uh, so far $800 million has come to El Paso through all of our uh, COVID response um, legislation, but the needs are very great. And so we're gonna keep working on that. That sounds great. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of the governor and, and, the, and the city and the county, that several states are now pulling back on their reopening plans and and some states are even kind of going backwards. I know Texas now, we've closed the bars and, and uh, are imposing other restrictions. Uh, businesses who reopened and are now going, you know, some reopened and now they're being closed again and they're struggling to make ends meet. Uh, are there, are, is there gonna be any further assistance provided to those businesses? That's what we're working for. Um, so for context, El Paso um, or Texas 16, uh, my congressional district received an estimated total of about $446 million in PPP funding. So I feel so great about the response by local banks and the local business owners who uh, participated in that funding. It was an important lifeline. The, the problem is it was a temporary lifeline. Um, and again, in the HEROES Act, uh, we renewed funding and support for small businesses. My view is um, actually a little bit different than what Congress has done so far. And, and I and other members of Congress have been pushing for a, a different approach in, in future packages. And I'll, I'll share with you what that approach is. It's, it's based on what Europe did. And in mm -hmm. some European countries, what the federal government did was provide direct funding through the businesses to the employees. So essentially it was the federal government saying, we'll pay your employees salaries and benefits and we'll offer you loans for your leases, for your mortgages, for your utilities. And what, um, what we did, and this, this was actually uh, a piece of legislation that we uh, brought forward through the Congressional Progressive Caucus, we had some of the most conservative economists take a look at that legislation and they said it was far more cost effective than what we're doing now, which is significantly um, uh, uh, funding unemployment, mm -hmm. funding SNAP and other food security programs, uh, the $1,200 stimulus checks and all of those other 
um, plus ups that 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 we included in previous pieces of legislation, the, the, some of the most conservative conservative economists told us it's cheaper to do it the way that Europe did. And essentially, you're keeping people tethered to their jobs, mm -hmm. to their benefits, and to their retirement. You're keeping our jobless numbers low, and you're you're much more ready and equipped to reopen once the economy is ready to reopen. So I and, and several others have been talking to leadership about taking that approach going forward, but there's... Um, it's you know it's it's such a radical and sort of new idea, um, but I feel like as a public policy, it's better to fund employment than it is to fund unemployment. And that was it's new and radical, but that's actually the German model, right? I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and so I feel like we can learn from models that have been successful. And, and I am a firm believer that, that it, it is a policy choice. Are we going to choose as a federal government to fund unemployment or, or do we want to fund employment? So hopefully we gain some traction with that idea. I hope, I hope so too. Uh, on the subject of the PPP, uh, just from, a, from a, a level closer to home, the Chambers of Commerce including uh, minority chambers of commerce, we're not eligible for the first PPP. And, you know, we rely on membership dues uh, from businesses in order to keep the operations going. And most businesses now, or many businesses, because of their uh, economic situation, simply are not uh, able or willing to, to continue to, to fund their dues or their sponsorships and things like that. And that's, that's certainly understandable, but it does have quite an impact on on chambers like ours. And uh, we were wondering, are, are there plans to provide uh, entities like the chamber, the 501c6s with, with some sort of access to either a PPP or something like that? Just on two fronts. Um, number one, uh, the Paycheck Recovery Act, which is the bill that you and I just talked about that is uh, rooted in the policy that we've seen in Europe that covers a broader scope of businesses that would include, for example, all of the 501s. Um, and the, the only thing that you need to demonstrate in order to access that funding is that you've been damaged by COVID finan financially. So you have to show that there's been a revenue loss that's directly linked to the, the COVID crisis. You've got to sign an affidavit with the IRS and then you qualify. Um, but in the absence of the, the Paycheck Recovery Act, we actually, in the very first uh, funding bill that, that we proposed, we had funding for the 501s in, in our bill. And the Republicans, unfortunately, stripped the bill of that. We put it back in in the HEROES Act, which, as I mentioned, we passed a couple months ago um, because we believe that the, the damage and the pain that is being felt as a result of COVID is broad and sweeping. And we have to cover um, as many businesses uh, as possible. And that includes 501s. So it's well, in the bill. And so we're yeah. hoping that it will stay in. Yeah, and, and the chambers, you know, are we're supporting a lot of small businesses. They come to us for information. They come to us for assistance in getting uh, uh, grants and loans and things like that. And so I think, it's a really important area. I know that some of the 501c3s may have gotten uh, right. gotten uh, funding out of the first bill, but 
the 501c6s like the chamber uh, were definitely left out. And so anything you can do to, uh, to get us included next time, we'd sure appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, now we talked about the economic impact of, uh, of COVID-19, but it's also having a tremendous impact on, on the health of, of our communities, obviously. And one of the things that uh, we're learning as, as the virus continues is that there are long-term effects on people, uh, particularly in the heart and lung uh, uh, capabilities and things like that, to where these folks may need healthcare for an extended period of time, you know, past when this crisis that we're all sort of focused on may, uh, may be gone, hopefully. Uh, and, and once that's gone, is there anything that's being done to, to consider how we, we provide long-term or care for these people in the long-term? My own uh, personal philosophy is that healthcare uh, is, should be uh, something that, that every American uh, has access to, along with high quality um, um, access. Um, but health insurance, rather, is, should be um, something that every American has access to, along with high quality care. And um, what we're seeing during the COVID pandemic, Mike, is what happens when large portions of the American population, American citizens, are without health insurance. What we're seeing in terms of the disproportionate impact on minorities is what happens when generations of Americans don't have access to health insurance and primary health care. That, that is why uh, minorities are so vulnerable, in fact. Um, our first bill, our family's first bill, one of the things that we fought for was cover, uh, coverage for everyone with COVID um, for as long as necessary. We also funded um, research in, in some of the subsequent legislation so that we can better understand. You know, one of the things that Dr. Fauci, as I, as I, I, you know, I mentioned him earlier, but one of the other points that he made to me that was equally frightening is that because we, we know so little right now about COVID-19, we don't know the impact over the long term. And we know that it attacks certain organs. We know that it attacks people differently. What, what we don't know is, is what happens over the long term. And um, for example, folks who, are, uh, who have had strokes as a result of COVID-19, you know, what are the long-term prospects for them? And um, so we, we have funded the research. Um, again, we need the Senate. We need the Senate's help and support. You know, we, this is a moment in time where if we do not address the very first crisis that we're facing, which is the health crisis, we're never gonna be able to address the economic crisis. You know, even when the state reopened, for example, and we were sort of, you know, open for business and doing it in stages, even when something was open, that didn't guarantee that people felt comfortable to go into a business, right? Because there was no comfort around the health situation. We've, we've got to, to address this health crisis first, um, and, and we've, we've got to make sure that we adequately fund the science and that we listen to the science once, uh, once we receive it. Thanks, and uh, let me jump shift for you here a little bit. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court just, uh, just denied the uh, Trump administration's attempts to end the DACA program. And uh, I think there's maybe mixed signals. Uh, 
on the one hand, the administration says, well, we're going to go back and, and, and attempt to satisfy the requirements of the Supreme Court so we can end it. But then at the same time, the president is also saying, well, he supports DACA or he, he wants to, a DACA resolution. Are you hearing from constituents that, what, one of the things, first of all, are, are constituents telling you that they are afraid to sign up for the DACA program because of the uncertainty surrounding it? Encourage um, DACA recipients to to sign up. We 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 need uh, to continue our support for the program, but absolutely, there's fear. You know, we we have seen the administration threaten. Um, uh, not just to undo the program, but some of the leaders within the administration have talked about deportation. And what you see also on social media is a, a, a really, um, it's a terrible pattern from the administration, uh, from US, US uh, CIS to CBP to DHS. They'll tweet out um, examples of immigrants and sometimes specifically dreamers who have either been convicted of a crime or have been accused of a crime, when in fact that percentage is tiny, but they're doing it in order to build up support against DACA recipients and against DREAMers and to fuel people's fears about DREAMers. When really, the, the, in, in many respects, I mean, it is almost a futile effort because when you look at national polling, regardless of political party affiliation, there is widespread support for DACA recipients and for DREAMers. And I think most Americans acknowledge these, these, these um, individuals are American in so many ways, except on paper. You know, I, had the, I wrote an op-ed for The Hill, which is a, a Washington DC publication um, urging for uh, you know, the, the Senate to take up our Dreamer Act, which we passed mm -hmm. a year ago, um, that's been sitting, you know, on the desk of Senator Mitch McConnell's, uh, uh, or at, it has been at the desk of Senator Mitch McConnell with, with, with complete inaction. But when I was researching um, and, and just doing a little bit of, of, of research on, on the DACA issue, I had a, an incredible conversation with one of many DACA recipients and dreamers in El Paso, um, a young nurse who the day of the August 3rd shooting and for weeks and weeks after cared for the victims in the ICU. And that same dreamer during this time of crisis, this global pandemic, has been assigned to the COVID unit in his hospital. He is putting his life on the line to help El Pasoans. He has done nothing but show and demonstrate a commitment to this country, a commitment to service. And I think most Americans recognize that and see that. It is my hope, Mike, that the Senate, and, and we've, we've you know, I've seen on social media, Senator Cornyn mentioned that he supports DACA recipients. It is, it is so non-controversial. All they need to do is pass our legislation. We, we could get a veto-proof majority if, if, if everyone would just listen to the polling and whether the president wants to or not, he would have to sign it if it's veto-proof. And then we'd be done with the issue. And it does seem like there's a lot of bipartisan support for it. There is. And so we've delivered the bill. <laughs> I hope they, they act on it. Well, and I hope they can find time to act on it during the COVID crisis. But uh, 
but uh, it, it does seem like with it being back in the news, maybe there's a, a, an opportunity. For that. I hope so. Um, now you've had several, uh, speaking of another topic that's uh, been in the news a lot lately, you've had several town halls on police accountability. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Justice and Policing Act and how it responds to the community members' concerns about policing? And you know, the, the, we are really in, in a very historic, we are living through a very historic moment in time. Um, you know, when, when you think about the civil rights movement and um, the, the, the gains and the advances that have been made over time, frequently the, the, what we've seen in the past is sort of this momentum building toward a moment. And that moment for us this year was when um, Americans all over the country and when people all over the globe witnessed the brutal murder of George Floyd right in front of our very eyes. Um, and you, and really, the, the part of what brought us to this moment is the fact that on our cell phones, uh, you know, which are almost every person on the planet has a cell phone, there are cameras, and and that moment was recorded, and and it, it, I I feel like it brought us to a tipping point in America that has been a long time coming, and you know, and I want to say first and foremost. Uh, my interactions with local law enforcement have always been very positive. My home was burglarized uh, uh, 10 years ago. And thank goodness for El Paso PD. You know, they, they solved the crime, um, you know, caught, caught the, the, the burglars. There was restitution paid. It was, thank goodness for law enforcement. You know, they, they, I'm very grateful for their service and for what they do for their community. And I truly believe that the vast majority of local law enforcement um, officers are um, professional, dedicated uh, um, uh, members of the community who feel an, a, a responsibility and an obligation um, to to be guardians to our community. And so, you know, I, I think whenever we ask for reform, there's always a natural and completely understandable tendency for defensiveness. You know, and I can tell you as someone who ran for county government and served in county government on a reform platform and who worked to create internal reforms, you know, you, you, you've got to remind folks that, look, we're all in this together and reforms should improve the situation for everyone. I feel the very same way about police reform, that this is a moment where we make communities and organizations better and safer. Um, and that includes better and safer for the very law enforcement agents who serve the community. Um, so our bill really was um, a, a, a pretty sweeping bill but many of us believe, myself included, that there is far more work to do in order to address racial inequality and to create racial justice. Um, but this bill is about police reforms. Um, I sent it to the city, to the county, to the sheriff, uh, shared it with the delegation. We had town hall meetings. Um, and it was really great. You know, I was able to answer questions for folks during one of the town hall meetings I had. Uh, a representative, Karen Bass, who is the author of the bill. She was on the town hall Zoom with me answering questions 
that El Pasoans had. Um, and it's, it too is waiting for action on the Senate side. The main difference of opinion, Mike, between the House and the Senate is that, that we believe that this moment demands true change. The Senate is more interested in studying what can happen. So we feel that, that there is enough history and evidence to demonstrate what the key areas of, of, of reform are. We cannot have reform though. So even if the Senate passes it, even if the president signs it, uh, which I hope happens, we cannot have true comprehensive reform just at the federal level. We have to have it at, at all levels, state and local. And during the local conversations, you know, I had the opportunity to hear some pretty painful stories from El Pasoans. Um, I also have shared with the public um, a, 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 a ruling from a federal judge, Judge Phil Martinez. Um, you know, the, the, there's a class action lawsuit against the city because of a practice that is alleged in this lawsuit of um, the shooting of unarmed people in a mental health crisis. And the stories in that lawsuit are, are incredibly heartbreaking, both for the families who have suffered loss at the hands of El Paso PD, but also I would assume it's heartbreaking for officers who have to then live with what happened in that moment. And the lawsuit is, is um, I, I feel like El Pasoans need to read, if not the lawsuit, at the very least, the, um, the response by uh, Judge Phil Martinez when the city asked for summary judgment. Um, and, and Judge Martinez said there's plenty of evidence here to go forward, and it's a pretty damning um, uh, ruling. And so, you know, the, the, this is the city's role, right? I have a role to play at the federal level, um, but I also feel as a citizen and as someone who represents the same constituents that the city has, it's my obligation to talk about it as well. Um, and so, you know, I've been um, a part of, of, of public conversations and we'll keep talking about it because, again, I believe reform benefits everyone, um, not just civilians in the community, but also uh, police officers who we never again want to see put in, in a position where they're living with a tragedy uh, at their hands for the rest of their lives. Hadn't thought about it from that direction, but that's interesting. Uh, finally, Congresswoman, we were, uh, uh, one of the things that's uh, been a topic, uh, certainly in this election year has been uh, income inequality. And there's actually even been some comments from, from Wall Streeters saying that something needs to be done about income inequality. Uh, have, uh, have you considered any proposals to legislatively deal with that situation? That has been actually part, as, as we've been having conversations in Congress leading up to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, We've talked about, you know, taking sort of a step back to talk about the broader issues. Um, as we've talked about the pandemic, many of us have also said, look at the inequality that this pandemic has laid bare. The difference between those who have health insurance and those who do not, the difference between those who are essential workers but get paid minimum wage, 
versus those who have the luxury of working from home. Um, and when we think about what economic success means in this country, I think too often we have looked at the stock market as an indicator, or we have looked at um, unemployment as an indicator. That we have to look at our um, economic success and our economic deficiencies in our country really through a much broader lens. And how do we begin to tackle that? You know, does access to health insurance play a role? I absolutely believe that. Does access to higher education or trade schools play a role? Absolutely, I believe that. Does raising the minimum wage, something that has, has, has gone untouched for too long, does that have a role to play? Absolutely. And so we in Congress last year, we passed the Raise the Wage Act, raising the wage over time, um, not all at once. We want to make sure that, that uh, we look at what's worked in some states and what didn't work in other states when, the, when wages went up and, and that we did it in a way uh, that was not damaging to the, the economy. But that's long overdue. And, and, and we want to take, you know, we want the Senate to take action on the Raise the Wage Act. Um, but, but there is a whole host of uh, pieces of, of legislation that we've passed and some yet to be passed. But if we are really to create uh, a country where people have access to opportunity, we cannot have two Americas in the way that, that we should be aware of now post pandemic. Um, so, you know, and then there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Financial literacy plays a component in that. But we have to start paying closer attention to that and we have to act on it. Because honestly, Mike, this is not going to be the last time that we deal with a global crisis. You know, with, with the climate crisis that is, that has, that arrived a long time ago and that unfortunately we have ignored for too long, we're gonna begin seeing all sorts of other challenges at our doorstep. And so um, we, we, we need to act with the same urgency that we've acted uh, um, you know, during this pandemic with. Congresswoman, thank you so much. We know there are tremendous demands on your time nowadays and with everything going on, and we really appreciate you taking the time out to visit with us today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Please stay safe. Thank you for the work that you all do. I'm really grateful for it. I'm really grateful for the partnership and, and I look forward to continuing to work together.